There are, there are changes, transformations that happen in a moment, and yet they seem to take a lifetime. There are changes that take years, a lifetime, and yet they are forever fused in our memories and in our stories to a moment. A bit over nine years ago, on the 27th of July of 2013, at around 10 p.m., I was sitting on a chair in a low-lit room at the Ullevol Hospital. And I had taken my shirt off and laying against my chest was this tiny little baby giving me these small little kisses as he searched for breast milk that I couldn't provide. What I could provide was the touch of the skin of a parent. He didn't know conceptually what that meant back then, but, but I was his father. I'm not sure I knew what it meant either. Roughly an hour before that, he was emerging from Carolina's womb. And within a few seconds, he was already in my arms. At that moment, when he emerged from the womb, I had, at least by some standards, become a father. Yeah, I had been in the process of becoming a father from before that moment, and Nine years later, I feel like I'm still in the process of becoming a father. I still don't quite grasp it. It was a transformative moment, but it was far from a done job. It is far from a done job. I daily need to learn what it means for me me precisely, to be a father. And in which ways being a father changes me, right? And it's seldom an easy work. But if I want to love my child well, I need to live this transformation daily and in all sorts of situations. There are changes, there are transformations that happen in a moment and yet they seem to take a lifetime. There are changes, transformations that, that take years, a lifetime. And yet they are forever fused in our memories and in our stories to a moment. As far as we can tell from the biblical witness, the apostle Paul had such a moment. A moment like that. He wasn't in a hospital. He wasn't becoming a father. But it was a deeply transformative moment. It was on the road. On the road heading towards the city of Damascus, uh, riding a horse towards that moment was Saul. Saul, the zealous Jew, the Pharisee 
Saul, the fundamentalist religious man of God, at least by the standard of his religious views and of the environment that he was within. Saul, bent on enacting God's justice and on enforcing God's standards. But then, on that road, it came. The flash of light that knocked him off his horse in disorientation, the voice of one divine speaking from the light and saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment, at first being led by the hand and then finally walking on his own, was Paul the Apostle. Paul the servant of Christ. Still very much a Jew. Still pretty intense on his faith. But now bent on declaring God's grace and the gospel of life in Jesus Christ. How does that kind of change of transformation come about? Right? It does by grace. That much is very clear in Paul's story. But how does a transformation like that come about? I think also through time and struggle. As that grace and that transformation take root and take expression in real life, in real people. There are changes, transformations that happen in a moment, and yet they seem and need to take a lifetime. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Well, I'm bringing all of this up because our text for today is from a letter written by Paul the Apostle. We are currently in a series looking at Paul's letters to the, letter to the churches in Galatia. And it can be tempting when we read from Paul's letter, and I feel this is often the case, to read them simply as letters from Paul the Apostle. Paul the Authority. To read them looking for words of authority and clarity from someone that is somehow on the other side of the dilemma on the other side of the challenge, <laughs> on the other side of the swamp that we need to cross in life. And because Paul is as intense as he is in his writing and personality, this means we run the risk of portraying Paul as a kind of an arrogant, merciless know-it-all and of reducing the complexity of not only the content, but the context from which and into which Paul is writing. And I'm not thinking only of the theological context, not only of the historical context in terms of understanding Near Eastern culture in the first century, but the context of Paul's own life. 
When I read today's text, that was the question I kept on asking myself and asking the text. What does this text say of Paul's own process of change and transformation? In which ways it reflects that process? And I found that that question is immensely challenging for us readers. And I hope you will see why. I want to read it with you. It's a a bit bigger chunk than we read last week, but it's a letter. It's easy reading. And it's from Paul's letter to the Galatians, so to the churches in the province of Galatia. From verse 11, I will read, to verse 10 of the second chapter. I'm reading from the New International Version. And it says... I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slave. And we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. 
Now, just a quick recap for those of us who maybe don't know what this is about, but the context of Paul writing this letter is that having in the beginning of his ministry uh, been to the province of Galatia and churches or groups of followers of Christ having emerged there, there now came a group of believers from Jerusalem that were espousing a different idea and were basically teaching that the people who were the the Gentiles, and Gentiles means the non-Jews, that had become followers of Christ needed to be full-fledged Jews in order to truly be part of the community of faith that had been shared, that had been formed around Christ. And this means they needed to be circumcised if they were males, and they needed to eat kosher, and they needed to follow certain rules that marked them out, not just as followers of Christ, but as Jews. And Paul is hitting back at this. This is the context of the, le- of the letter. And he's saying, as soon as you do that demand to Gentile believers, you're undoing the gospel. This is Galatians in a nutshell. This is what the whole thing is all about. And in this context, and in the context of Paul and how much we talk about him in churches and all the letters that he wrote, we might perhaps read this text merely as Paul sort of flaunting his authority, right? As, or as showing off his authority as one to whom Christ spoke directly and with whom even the apostles dared not disagree. Right? That's a way of reading it. Paul is saying, oh, see how I am speaking directly from God I have that kind of authority, and not even the apostles that walked with Christ while he was alive in Galilee, not even they dared to disagree with me. That's a way of reading it. I find that it makes me annoyed with Paul, and that it challenges me very little. But what if we listen to how Paul is telling of his own continuing transformation? of his becoming in these words, or of how his processing of his own experience as a follower of Christ is coming forth here as he says these words, as he talks about his own life and his own experience. And as we read it in this way, a couple of things come, come, call our attention. We see Paul dealing with how what he received from Christ profoundly changed his sense of self and his sense of purpose. Now, what Paul talks about here, and that might come across, if we're not careful, as bragging, is actually very counterintuitive to the context from which Paul came and where Paul was inserted. So Paul was a guy who at this point in his life before meeting Christ had worked hard at being learned and recognized as one who sat under the right rabbis, had the right kind of authority, and had the right kind of Jewish pedigree in order to enforce the kind of religiosity that he thought was right. Coming from that mindset, what makes most sense for Paul to do as soon as he has a shift, is to say, okay, so I'm going to look for the stamp of authority from the new authorities in this new religious identity. I'm going to go to Jerusalem immediately. I need to get my CV right. 
But that's not what Paul does. Paul is struggling with his identity as he is being suddenly asked and finds a calling to meet and speak to those who were further off from him. Not going to Jerusalem and to his new religious authorities for someone with Paul's biography was a humbling experience, I think. And also, I don't know what else was there, right? These were the people he was actively persecuting. We don't know why Paul didn't go. (laughs) We know that he didn't go, and we see this coming through in this, this Paul struggling with what this experience means. What does it mean that I am now a servant of Christ? And not only that, a servant of Christ to the Gentiles. While Paul was before this trying to sort of fix the Jews that had gone wrong, now Paul is going towards them that were completely outside. And he's preaching belonging to them. We see also Paul dealing with what this new sense of self and of God's redeeming power in Christ meant in terms of reconciliation and of community. You see, Paul, who persecuted the church, Paul, who was, to many extents, a religious fanatic within his own tradition, right? Paul is suddenly having to realize what it means to be in community with these people that were the other in his tradition of faith. But then also, how does he reconcile with those whom he hurt closest? What does a community that has room for both these realities look like? And if you think about Paul's biography, I find it very interesting that Paul goes first to the, to the Gentiles. But there's something else he needs to do, right? Because the people Paul was actively persecuting and throwing in jail and being witness to their death was not the Gentiles. It was the Jewish believers. Paul needs to reconcile that into his new sense of belonging and into his new community. There is a deep, profound experience in coming to somebody like Paul and Cephas, the ones he most wanted to get in jail, and have them say, the grace you experienced in Christ is the same one we did. And there is community there as well. There's possibility of community. Paul is dealing with how what had been given to himself and to those with him had implication for everyone else receiving the message. Reading this text in this light, allowing Paul's story, his becoming, to have texture in the text, 
to not just say, Paul met Christ, now he's an apostle, job done, you know? Mike had a kid, now he's a father, job done. Well, the job ain't done. It's the becoming of. And seen in this light, Paul telling this story has less about him espousing and showing off his authority and much more about him making of himself a case in point about how difficult and how necessary the transformation of our own hearts and of our own attitudes and of our own communities is when they are touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How difficult and deeply transformative this process is. And it takes time. Paul talks about three years where he doesn't even dare go there. And then he talks about 17 years after he met Peter the first time. And in this time, if we read about what's going on in Acts, these questions that Paul is dealing with in the letter to the Galatians, the questions of belonging to Christ and how that shapes a community, these questions are being struggled with by real communities, by people meeting and figuring out, okay, how is it possible that we can be a community together? Paul believes that the gospel's calling is a calling to transform ourselves and transform the communities to which we belong. And that's why he hits this hard and speaks this loud. Also because he's Paul. He has that kind of character. And that's also part of it, isn't it? That the gospel asks us to be transformed so radically and at the same time be so radically ourselves. And what does that mean when we try to work that out into the reality of our lives? What did it mean for Paul to find out what it meant that he was accepted with all that energy and strength in argumentation and that almost... How, what did it mean to live that in Christ and yet to not allow that because it was in Christ to make him into a violent man as he had been, for instance. And seeing this in this light brings the question for us. This is why I think this is so much more challenging for us today because it, mean, it brings the question, what does it mean for us? To not only read a text of a letter from Paul and say, okay, this solves the issue of the circumcised versus the non-circumcised in Galatia in the first century, right? And Paul, the apostle, solves the issue, right? But to not do that, but rather to ask what does it mean for us to live this transformation in the daily challenges of our lives as this stuff gets worked out in the dusty roads of our actual lives? What does reconciliation and grace look like in the universe of our very real relationships? Who are the people we need to reconcile with? Who, are the other, who is the other we need to figure out what does it mean that God's grace is for them? 
What are the relationships that we need to get back to? And how does this shape the way we are a community? This is so much more challenging for us today than simply understanding the, the circumcision issue of that day and the whole Jew-Gentile divide because that's more very likely not what you're dealing with in your life. For most of us, it's a historical religious curiosity at max, right? But what are the relationships? What are the issues? What are the things we're actually dealing with? How does this transformation of the gospel touch our lives? Who is the other we need to learn to love? What is the hatred in ourselves that we need to learn to transform? Who are those we need to reconcile? This is when suddenly we're talking about dealing with issues of systemic racism, for instance. The issues of our day, of exclusion, of ethnic-centered narratives, of nationalisms that turn violent, of divides in our family over, I don't know, what does it look like? What does it look like? What does this process of becoming and belonging look like in our lives? And as much as we might struggle with Paul and his way of saying things, his life challenges us if we allow his life to speak. If we don't reduce him to an output of doctrinal statements as he sometimes is reduced to. But look at this deep transformational walk of becoming in the life of this man who was a violent persecutor and becomes a suffering servant with his Lord and is somehow trying to shape communities that insist on belonging. And when you do that kind of thing, you make people uncomfortable. Paul did. That's why he's writing this letter, right? Some people didn't like it. You're sitting people around a table that shouldn't be sitting together. You're mixing stuff up. You're messing with the status quo of our divisions and our hatreds. Let's tidy this up. No. Paul says, I don't want to tidy it up. <laughs> what does it mean in the reality of our lives that grace can meet someone like Paul and someone like me? How do we learn to love in the stuff 
of our daily lives. We're going to keep on dealing with Paul for the next weeks, right? And we're going to talk about this issue from all sorts of directions. But today, the question for the text and the challenge is that we don't let it float into these abstract, ethereal, you know, areas of our big doctrines of faith. We actually allow it to land in our lives, in our biographies, in our prejudices, in our struggles. Because the gospel calls us to transform ourselves and the communities we live in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. And may he bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.